stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. My name is Richard Hill. I'm here with our Cracker Jack panel today. Everybody's uh, ready at their microphones. <laughs> Action is about to happen. We have a jam-packed show, so we can't fool around, Laura. No, none of the usual hijinks. Uh-oh. Okay. Ready? Okay. Okay, Mr. Hill. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. I do appreciate the respect. Too bad we don't have visuals, because that would make it much more interesting. I don't know. We have a lively... I mean, we uh, could always get the webcam going at some point. Well, that's coming. That is coming. Video is coming to PKN. Uh, I want to also welcome Steve Munno. Steve, are you with us? Yes, great to be here. Yeah, it's great. And you're coming off the high of CT NOFA Winter Conference, which... I, by the way, I was there briefly. I, my helicopter landed on the, on the lawn. <laughs> I ran in, had lunch, and uh, got, made it to the keynote, but I couldn't stay for the whole thing. I just saw the beginning. But you're going to tell us a bit about that when we get to the, the small farm reports. Stand yeah, by, absolutely. Steve. Yeah, that's going to be great. Well, we do have a tight schedule today. So Laura, let's go right to Laura, Laura Modlin, who is going to give us the solar lunar report okay so it's i'm i'm very excited about this time of year because um right now we are three minutes away from having equal time for the darkness and the sun literally three minutes we had sunrise today at 703 <laughs> and tonight it sets at 700 and at seven o'clock and so the equinox is next monday the 20th and people often think that that's the day when it's equal night and day, but that's an old myth. It's not, but it is the time when the two, the southern and the northern hemispheres, are receiving the sun's rays equally, um, and it's when the sun crosses the Earth's equator, going from, going from south to north. So it's coming up towards us to give us the warmer weather in the spring. So the equinox is is Monday. And um, that is, is Monday. That's the first day of spring. And um, last Sunday, as you know, we fell back. We sprung ahead with our clocks. And, um, and that can give you people a reason to be crabby because the, the sun coming late early, sun coming earlier in the morning, later at night, it's, it's just, it throws off people's hormones and such. But this coming Tuesday, the 21st, the day after the equinox, is the new moon. And it's the new moon for the 
pink moon cycle, which will be full on April 6th. And the, the moon is not actually pink, though. Um, it's it's named... <laughs> No. Well, this is this, is this new to you? News? This is scandalous. As opposed to the red, the uh, blood red moon, which it is actually red. That is red. But no, but the, the pink moon, um, as most, uh, I'm finding that most full moons' names are English translations of Native Americans' names. And it's this one is named after the Phlox subulata. Um, wildflower that comes in April. Yeah, flux, yeah. Yeah, and and those are native plants, I believe. And so then, lastly, I'm going to talk about that this spring we have a black new moon on May 19th. And a black new moon, um, there's a few different ways you can have a black new moon. One of them, which is what we're having, which is fairly um, rare, is when there are four new moons in a season. So we have a new moon in March, April, May, and June. And when that happens, the third one is called the black new moon. The black new moon. Yeah, and I think, you know, just because it's dark, more darkness in the season. Uh, So I have a question then. Uh, So when is the time of equal uh, daytime and nighttime? I always thought it was on the, the uh, equinox. I did too, but apparently not. I think it's sometime in the next few days. Uh, okay. Because we're we're three minutes off right now. Oh, today. I see what you're saying. So we today, still have... we still have to we still have to get three more minutes of daylight to be equal. Oh, okay. So we're very close. We're okay. very close. And what kind of psychological hailstorm might we experience when that equanimity is achieved? Um. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> nothing. Well, nothing will happen. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe there's something. I don't know what will happen, but you'll be able to see. If you actually pay attention, you can you can notice differences. Like at noon, the sun will be directly above us. And whereas at the equinox, cl- or close to the equator, rather, um, the sun is pretty equal um, all year round. It's 12 and 12 all year round, mainly right by the equinox. 12 hours and 12 hours. Yeah, like yeah. in Singapore, it's 12 hours and 12 hours for the most part for the whole year. Mm-hmm. And then the further away you get, and the, e- and the equator is, is equal distance to the north and south pole, and the further away you get from the equator and towards the poles, the more variety there is in terms of the light. Diversity. Diversity, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we got to get that word in here. Laura, I appreciate uh, your deep research into issues solar and lunar. Thank Once you. again, you've hit a home run with us here Thank today, you. even though I'm somewhat confused by uh, some uh, of this stuff. I, I For some reason, I cannot assimilate what is it you're confused uh, astronomy. About? I just... I had a teacher in high school, a history teacher, and the first thing he did was he showed us, like, the relationship with the sun, the moon, and all the planets. I was like, why is he doing this? I was confused then, and I remain confused about (laughs) astronomical astronomical issues. Can't even pronounce the the word. The black moon name is not not from astronomy. It's just, you know, manufactured. I understand that. Okay, well, let's turn now to Steve. Steve Mono from Masaro Farm, who was one of the MCs and a key speaker at the CT NOFA conference. He's also the president of the board of directors of CT NOFA. Steve, give us sort of a summary or highlights of the conference and share some of that with us, please. Sure, absolutely. So, yes, I, yeah, I've been serving as um, 
co-president of the board of Connecticut NOFA for um, a few years now, and I've been a part of the organization for a number of years. And it was really great to be back together in person. You know, we've had the last uh, two years as virtual conferences only. Um, our, our last time together was three years ago, March of 2020, right before the pandemic really struck. So it was great to gather again and see faces. And though, Richard, I didn't see you. I was glad, glad to hear that you made it. Um, and I think you made it for a really wonderful uh, keynote presentation. Leah Peniman, you know, is an extraordinary person and a wonderful speaker and presenter. And I was glad to see, you know, the way that NOFA brings in an intergenerational crowd, you know, young farmers, new farmers, uh, many of our mentors and elders in uh, farming, landscaping, agriculture, food leaders throughout the state, you know, are there and coming together to hear, you know, an important voice like Leah's uh, present in this way, you know, people were really moved and um, really grateful that we could gather in person for that because there's just a different feel to it. You know, I think we had great virtual offerings throughout the week leading up to it and great virtual conferences, but really nice to see some people, you know, share some hugs and, and see some faces and, and have some time together uh, in Middletown there. So we're already looking forward to next year, too, as we're still sort of riding on, on the high, as you say, from uh, from this weekend's conference. Wonderful. Yeah, I just want to stick in a little thing here that I forgot to mention, which is that in scant minutes, we're going to have a special update from the founder of 10,000 Hawks, which is an environmental organization on the shoreline in Connecticut. This is Lorena Venegas, who's going to be giving us an update about the Tweed Airport expansion, which we covered on this show four months ago, if I'm not mistaken. The movement is building, but the critical time is approaching. So we're going to get uh, Lorena to give us an update on you know actions that people can take, information that they can still get about this if, they, if they're not sure about all the environmental impacts involved in this situation. So Lorraine will be joining us in a few minutes. Steve, can you give us some of the key points that Leah Peniman covered in her keynote address? I caught the, the first 10 minutes of it, and man, when she gets on a stage or behind a podium, it's like the whole room lights up. It's amazing. You know, it's just such a, she's such a beacon. But tell us a little bit about what her thing was. What did she talk about? Sure. So she has a, a new book that's come out called Black Earth Wisdom. And in it, she, um, you know, speaks with and, um, some of the elders uh, in um, black sort of spirit, spirituality and agriculture and is sort of sharing that wisdom. And I think, you know, this sort of idea of earth listening and, and drawing on our elders for their knowledge and traditions uh, to bring into today's practice is something that I think she wanted to highlight. Um and so, you know, I don't want to try to, you know, share her words directly. I think there's a lot of opportunities to read from her but mm-hmm. um, and share those voices. But, um, you know, there's a powerful tradition, uh, you know, um, that we are standing on top of now and need to bring up and need to include into our work, uh, you know, as farmers, as um, stewards of land. And, you know, there's a lot of feeling, I think, today for people that can be about, you know, being disconnected from nature, being disconnected from the earth. And when we draw on our history and we look to our elders, we can, um, I think there's a strength in that connection. Um, So I think Leah was really trying to to bring that forward. 
to us. And I think the NOFA conference is a really great place to do that. So I was personally appreciative of that. Her book has only just become available, so I was able to get my copy at the conference. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I've heard the words, but I have have yet to read it. So I've got it here uh, at home with me at the farm, and I'm sort of looking forward to digging in deeper. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you something. We we know that our friend Freedom Geraldo was also there giving, Mm -hmm. I guess, with uh, his wife, Elizabeth, a workshop on hemp, which, as you may recall, during the interview that we did with him on this show, he got pretty deep into that topic. But there's so much more. So that must have been fascinating. I'm, I'm really sorry I didn't catch that. But I'm wondering. It, it was. Any, and, yeah, okay. go ahead, Steve. I, was say, I did go. He gave a workshop, and I sat in on that workshop as well that he and oh, yeah. Liz gave. It was well attended, wonderfully presented, and you know, addressed the issues, um, you know, sort of issues and opportunities for growing hemp. Uh, you know, in Connecticut and throughout the state, uh, or throughout the country, rather, you know, what are the developments happening or what they they would like to see, you know, opportunities to do textiles. And, you know, it's not just about CBD, though there's a big big of that. There are so many ways to use hemp, so uh, they can, you know, illuminate, you know, the opportunities, address the challenges facing the industry, and, um, you know, hopefully inspire people to, um, you know, grow hemp and join in, you know, we, we need more people to grow it and we need manufacturing support and such to develop an industry to support the growers. So right now there's a sort of, there's an interest in growing, but we need the, the infrastructure to support, you know, the, the product and, and transforming, you know, that the hemp that's grown into the products that we might use them for. That's interesting, Steve. I want to learn as much as I can about that because clearly it is striking that for decades, right, hemp was illegal and, you know, there's all kinds of politics involved there and clashes with other industries which did wanted to suppress the production of hemp. And, of course, then there was the taboo about its being related to the marijuana plant and all that. But, I mean, all those years, all those decades that were lost in the process of building this industry and technology around hemp, it's quite sad. It really is sad. And I'm glad that we're trying to catch up with the real world and find ways to use hemp in in all the ways that Freedom was telling us about. Anybody else? Yeah, I have a question. Laura has a question. Okay. Hi, Steve. Um, So my question is about, I've heard, and I'm not sure the extent of this, is that the government has, in Connecticut, has restrictions on what chemicals can be used on hemp, which is different than on food. Is that correct? You know, I, I don't grow hemp, so I can't speak to it. And though, you know, I, t- I, I took some notes at their workshop. Um, it'd be better for me not to address that. It's a strictly regulated crop still, which is so, it's, you know, anyone can grow it. You need a license, uh, but it, it, is, it is regulated. Um, so it's not like just growing, you know, lettuce or tomatoes in your backyard. Well, Laura, your point is that it's, I guess, quote unquote, pesticide free. Is that is that well, the that's, well, you, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I I did hear I did talk to someone about this, and she indicated that there are yeah the government doesn't allow certain pesticides on hemp, but it does on food. Yeah, it, it would make sense since it's well actually it, because it's consumable. Yeah, you know. I don't know, but, but I, don't I remember. Know. I don't know if you remember in the, I believe in the seventies, there was the whole Paraquat thing where they were spraying Paraquat on marijuana and on hemp in Mexico to. Uh, I don't know if to oh, stop on, it from growing on or marijuana. On that, mar- was, that was to, to, yeah, yeah on to, marijuana. Yeah, to, to make it. I guess to make it toxic or yeah, to or, make or, it. Else to, or else to kill it. 
Is hemp a, a hardy crop? Do you know? Is it a what? A hardy crop. Oh, hardy. I thought it said yeah. party. Like, <laughs> that, that's what people used to think, but um, it turns out you can smoke a lot of hemp and nothing happens. So, yeah. I, so I have to admit, I'm yeah. a little bit confused between, and even after talking to Freedom, between hemp and marijuana because they're in the same family. I don't know much about this, but I think that the difference is that hemp does not cont- contain any THC, which is the psycho- psychoactive. Component. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I think it's a different part of the plant, is what it yeah. is. A different part of the plant. It's more than that, because wow. yeah, hemp. And then when you get into THC, I think there. Then you get into the thing of indica versus sativa, and the indica is a kind of chilled out reaction and the sativa is the more getting your mind bent a reaction. Steve, do you have any insight on this? You, you <laughs> oh yeah, Steve. You bring to this f- floundering panel here. Right. Well, to be clear, I think the growing that, you know, Freedom and others are have been doing has been about hemp and, and not marijuana. It is, it, they are separate. They are, you know, related, but separate, you know, and you can think about it like tomatoes and peppers are related too. They're in the same family. They're nightshades, they're salonims, but they're different. And, and we can see how they're different, um, you know, with their fruit, but their plant habits are similar. So, you know, there's lots of things that share family or genus and species even, but then, um, you know, are, are different because of how they've been cultivated uh, over time. So, you know, the, the, yeah, the hemp and marijuana are, are, are different but related. Well put. All right, Steve, last words on uh, the NOFA conference or on anything else. Laura, you know, she brought us some snow during our last show around that time. But then mm-hmm. she promised us more snow and then she didn't deliver this time. So. Well, we did get a covering of snow, you know, and I know certain parts of the states got a lot. Uh, I think down in Bridgeport, maybe you, you didn't get a covering, but I'm I'm looking out right now, and there's still snow just on the side of our high tunnels and in shady spots. So we had a, a, a good covering of snow. It was actually quite lovely for a bit here, uh, you know, three or four inches of snow oh, wow. uh, as it changed from rain to snow throughout the storm. So glad to have that last bit, and it's really going to bring us right into mud season. You know, this is we get into spring here if we're not frozen uh, as the ground softens, you know, gets quite muddy. Um, so, and then, you know, for gardeners, you, you should probably be okay to start getting into your garden as soon as the ground is workable. But we always want to be careful with wet soil. You know, if you work wet soil, there's a risk of compacting it, uh, you know, and squeezing the air out of it as you do any any um, moving of the soil. And the, the air is really important in the soil. We need that soil structure to, you know, with air in it to allow um, for oxygen to get to roots and to the microorganisms in, in the soil, but and the, and room for the roots to grow and room for you know future rain to um, travel through the soil. So we want to make sure we really don't compact the soil in our gardens or on the farm. And so you know we're getting ready with our greenhouse full of seedlings, and we'll start working the soil uh, outside as soon as it dries out. And we have areas on the farm that with you know that are a little more sloped that dry out quicker than our flatter spots. And then, of course, we have inside our tunnels where it's protected, where, you know, the ground is not as wet. So because it's, you know, been sheltered by uh, the plastic covering on the tunnel, so we, you know, start our season in there, and that sort of mitigates against, you know, whatever the spring might be. We've had months in March where we're fully covered in snow and the ground is still still frozen until the end of the month. Uh, that's been, you know, less frequent in, in uh recent years um 
So we're more reliable to get into the ground um, a little earlier, but we still have to be mindful of the wetness. So that's what we're looking at now. And mm-hmm. I just want to say for, for um, Laura's report, you know, farmers don't don't uh, have anything to do with the uh, time change, by the way. You know, it comes up, and I heard some people say it over the weekend, you know, farmers want the daylight savings. I, I'll speak for myself. I do not want the daylight savings, <laughs> but it's a, it's a bit of a myth that farmers sort of push the daylight savings. Right. So debunking we, we, we another. We that another yeah. time. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very well done. Don't blame us if you're, you know, don't blame the farmers who think that it's helping <laughs> it, us. It's, it's a, not helping me. It's tough on me and my family, too, and our yeah. farm schedule. Yeah, and our it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's yeah. a commonly held belief, though. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. All right. Quickly, we pivot now to our Tweed Airport expansion update. And for that, we're bringing into our airspace here. Lorena Vanegas, who is going to give us an update. Well, I'm here with Lorena Vanegas, and it's really cool that you could take the time to do this interview. Tell us about the Tweed Airport Expansion Project. What do we need to know about it? Why should people be concerned about this? Absolutely. We're in a critical time where we need people to be involved and Put, uh, provide your public comments for the draft environmental assessment. We have a meeting coming up on April 1st. It's going to be held at the East Haven High School, and you'll have the opportunity to make your comments come alive because there's going to be a stenographer recording those comments and making it part of their federal record. And what should you say? You should say that we deserve an environmental impact statement. The meeting will be April 1st, and we want you there at 1.30 p.m. All right, that's when and where what we have to do. Why do we have to do it? What is so important about this issue, about the expansion, the Tweed Airport expansion? Where is it, and what's the proposal? Yeah, right now, Tweed Airport is straddling two towns, East Haven and New Haven. East Haven is actually number 17 on the Connecticut Environmental Justice List. And what happens with this environmental assessment is if we don't speak out, they're going to build a terminal over wetlands. It's going to cause obstructions in traffic, and it's going to affect the environment in terms of increasing carcinogens and air pollution and noise pollution. So... What about the wetlands issue? How much wetlands will be covered? How will that affect the ecosystem of East Haven and and the environs? Currently, when you go to East Haven, we only have one evacuation route. Everybody knows it. It's Hemingway Avenue, Short Beach Road, and Co. Avenue, and that leads to Proto Drive. We have major stormwater issues in our town. Any kind of filling of wetland is actually taking away from the natural mitigation of flooding. Because we don't have any coastal resilience plans in our town, what happens is water is displaced. And when you build on top of wetlands and you fill it on the East Haven side, it's detrimental. Right now, that site is only four and a half feet above sea level. In order to build a structure, you need minimum 12 feet. That's going to be 61,300 cubic yards of fill, which for you and me is a lineup of 4,378 trucks, dump trucks. Can you imagine that? How, how, that would be almost the length of 91 going to Bradley. <laughs> And what about the issue of air pollution and also the runoff from jet fuel into the wetlands? And and how how will that affect, like, for example, our river system? What rivers are involved here? And also even the Long Island Sound, which the rivers empty into. Sure, absolutely. So we have the Quinnipiac River and the Farm Rivers being the main two waterways that lead down to Tuttle Brook and Morris Creek. Uh, Tweed Airport is bounded by Tuttle Brook and Morris Creek, and all that water volume is guided through tidal gates 
out to Long Island Sound. Whenever you expand an airport with more planes, you're gonna be de-icing, and those chemical pollutants are gonna go down the water. The only thing they use is sodium bicarbonate, and the tweet history is they have been in deep violation, which means that the Connecticut Department of Energy and the Environment has already told them, hey, you're not supposed to do it this way. You weren't doing the monitoring reports correctly. Can we trust what's gonna happen in the future? I don't think so. We also have standing reports that, sh- that show that they're supposed to be increasing marshlands in that same property, and they just haven't done it within the last 20 years. Now they actually wanna destroy more. In terms of uh, noise pollution, we have planes right now that are not in compliance. The 737-800 planes require that longer runway. They shouldn't be using those airplanes at all now. And because the structure and topography of the land almost is shaped like a cereal bowl, that noise reverberation is what's happening in people's homes. They feel the, the glasses of water are shaking. Their walls are rattling. They see cracks in their in their foundations and on their walls. And you can do noise mitigation, but not nothing has ever done, been done well on the East Haven side. And that's why we need our voices out. You're speaking about noise pollution right now. Is that going to be impact also residents of Brantford and other towns, either on the shoreline or toward the New Haven side? The facts show that Brantford is one of the towns that actually takes up the most abuse from the flight paths. When the planes take off and land, they're going over Brantford the most, over 50% of the time. And the elevation of those planes is coming in at less than 2,000 feet. So you are getting jet fuel residue, and that will go on your community gardens, the solar panels, our roads and driveways, our children, our wildlife. We currently live under the largest bird migration path in New England. You look up right now, the birds are coming back. The bald eagles are out. The red-winged blackbirds are out. And those are the birds that that we should be protecting. We always should be protecting the voiceless. And when we see that an industry is expanding just because they want to make more money five years down the line, it's not right. So it seems you're raising an issue in a, in a sense of environmental justice, justice for the wildlife. What about issues of justice for the population? And not just in, on the shoreline for this particular issue, but how does this reverberate through other communities in terms of their own environmental justice issues? We know that in New Haven and other big cities, the tendency is to build toxic facilities in poor neighborhoods, working class neighborhoods, black and Latino neighborhoods. And the issue there is, of course, you know, increased disease, increased distraction from noise and other issues like that. What's your comment on the environmental justice issue? It's absolutely 100% relevant right now. We have bills at the state legislature, SB 1145, SB 1147. These are environmental justice laws that haven't been updated for decades. What does that mean for my town? Is that when it comes to most vulnerable, which is children and the elderly that might have respiratory ailments that include the highest incidence of asthma hospitalizations that's documented to you through U.S. Census data and American surveys, We know that that's going to get worse with more air pollution. And that's why we need to protect and we need to be active and we need to be present at these meetings. When you say the highest levels of asthma recorded, which town or area has that? 
Right now, we have data that is being collected and reported out through Data Haven. You can also go to the DEP website and also the Department of Public Health, and they will show you that East Haven has the highest asthma incidence of hospitalizations. Why do you think that is, other than the tweet issue? I'm, it, this, I presume, predates even the tweet expansion that's taken place so far, but of course, the one that's proposed hasn't happened yet. Why does East Haven have that kind of level? Yep, so right now we know that New Haven County is out of compliance for air quality. And it's a major issue that's being talked about not only in local circles, but also state and federal. We live in a section of Connecticut that gets cumulative impacts of environmental injustices from different facilities, including waste, including industry, including pollution from even out of state. And right now, even at the Capitol, there, there are some bills out there that are supposed to recede the amount of pollutants, even out of state. Can it be done? Yes, it can be done. It needs to be done because right now there's money coming through the Infrastructure Reduction Act, and that money is going to sit with Connecticut DEP, and they have to decide who's going to get it and how is it going to be used. And I have a big call right now to our congressional delegates. We need air quality monitoring in our area. We need to know our baseline. We need health accounts. And that's what other airports actually do for their residents. They have standing health accounts and they have monthly air quality and noise reporting. If you were to take a drive to Westchester Airport, that's what they have. How do they get it? Because the the elected officials made it happen. Before we conclude and repeat the action recommendations that you stated at the beginning, what I want to ask you now about is the environmental assessment that has been done already. What do we know about that? Yeah, so right now we want to make sure that you get the documents. So the one way you can get the documents is you can go to tweedmasterplan.com. There's going to be a tab there that is called NEPA documents, N-E-P-A. You're going to click there and you're going to be able to read a 200-page document. However, I want to warn you, the appendices are over a thousand pages and that's where the crux of the arguments are that we need to challenge and question into an EIS or the Environmental Impact Statement. When you go to the website, you'll also see a, um, a click to comment and you'll be directed to an, uh, an email address that is accepting your comments right now all the way through April 16th. And those comments can be sent via email to hvn-ea and then the at symbol uh, mjinc.com. That's where you can send your comments. You can also have a physical address that's available on the same website or come out April 1st. Use the microphone. Use your voice. Beautiful. But the environmental assessment that was done, where did that originate from and how do you value it or how do you assess that assessment? Yeah, in Connecticut, it's a unique structure because we have a lot of private corporation to lead an environmental assessment. This is not the way it's done in Westchester. Are, are you saying that the industry that's being assessed is doing its own assessment? That's right, and it's being paid for 100% by FAA. And behind the scenes, people might think that this uh, Avports is the operator of the facility that they're putting any money in. They're not. The FAA is paying for this. The history of the place is that we had an EIS in the year 2000. What is an EIS? 
An EIS is an environmental impact statement, and what that does is it gives the FAA the authorization to bid out for a consultant to do the actual studies and the work of the environment that will be affected. So if I'm concerned about air pollution, wetlands, they will have to hire the right consultant and answer the community questions. We as a community will have a seat at the table. That's not what we have now. So the EIS is going to be more in-depth and offer a more complete picture of the environmental impact? That's correct. And um, an agency such as Connecticut Department of Energy and the Environment will no longer be a coordinating agency sitting back. They'll be in, they have to take an active role in making sure that they go after environmental injustices. So tell us once again about some of the organizations that people can contact, for example, 10,000 Hawks. How do, we, how do we stay in touch with that organization and any other environmental groups that you think we should know about? Sure, we have more than five organizations in the community right now, so I want to make sure that you get all the content. The first place you should go to is 10,000hawks.org. It's our website. You're going to be linked so that you can put in your email address and you'll receive weekly newsletters. Every week we have Zoom meetings where you can learn how to make empowered letters that make a difference. The second organization is Save Our Shoreline. This is a Branford group that's doing dynamic work in, in connecting to residents and has been absolutely active in making sure that the policy is heard at the local, state, and federal level. We have flytweetfacts.org, and this is an organization that's comprised to teach people how to use your civic tools of letter writing to make an effect at the federal level. And then the last group is an East Haven group called Keep Tweet Small. All of these organizations have Facebook pages, so definitely look out for them. 10,000 Hawks, Save Our Shoreline, Keep Tweet Small, and Fly Tweet Facts. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lorena Venegas, for joining us today on WPKN. And I know that your group is lucky to have you as a fighter in that, in that organization. Thank you so much for the invitation. And we love living here. We're not going to move. We're set here, and we want our children to have the best future possible. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay. I think people all over Connecticut need to pay attention to this and support efforts there on the shoreline, which is such a fragile ecosystem. All right. So once again, this is the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill. I'm here with Laura Modlin, Chris Ferrio, and Steve Munno on the phone. And now we have, I'm going to turn it over to Laura, because this is our Women's History Month special celebration today. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, our month. Yeah. That's a, right. And uh, uh, what's uh, what's history. your motto? W- Women's History Month and then the rest of the year? Oh, yeah. We get one month and then Men's History Month is 11 months. Uh, (laughs) so we have to make the most of it and i think we have a great guest and a great topic um we're going to be talking with donna merrill who is um with the pollinator pathway she was founder and she is president of the board of directors and she's a director and officer of the norwalk river watershed association and many many other things and we're going to be talking about Rachel Carson's life and legacy. And actually, Bill Ducine introduced me to Rachel Carson years ago um, when, you know, to, sh- to kind of just show me how somebody, because she faced a ton of vilification for her advocacy against, against pesticides. And he, so he, he wanted me to see, because I was um, exposing 
fraud in the um, in the local food movement and getting a lot of blowback for it. No, no surprise. And she really helped inspired me to keep going and to see that one person can make a difference. So hi there, Donna. Are you with us? I am. Hi there, Laura. Hi. Nice to hear you. And um, yeah, so I'm just so happy to be here. I'm I'm really um, I can't tell you since you invited me to talk about Rachel Carson, it's it's like she's visited me in my sleep and made <laughs> me <laughs> kind of remember her influence. So it's really wonderful. Well, why don't you start from the beginning and give us because some people may. You know, Rachel, this is like 1962 that uh, the Silent Spring I came know, out. What, so why don't, you, why don't you remind us and our younger listeners who Rachel Carson is and how important, you know, her yeah, legacy. Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm going to give away my age a little bit, but um, in 1963, I was in seventh grade, and we were assigned Silent Spring to read and debate. And I was given um, the task of debating the two smartest kids in seventh grade they were on the side of the chemical guys and i was on rachel carson's side and i was thinking about this and i remember the one thought the one memory i have is how in the world can anybody support the chemical companies it made no sense to me even when i was a 12 year old so that was my introduction to rachel carson and um I'd love to tell you a little bit about her life. She, um, oh gosh, she was a woman in the 20s who wanted to be a scientist. And, you know, women weren't scientists back then, but she did it anyway. And then in the 1930s, she was in the process of getting her master's degree, and it was a depression, and she didn't have enough money and had to quit. So um, she went to work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made $2,000 a year. That was her salary. (laughs) We can't believe that now. And um, worked for them, was able to, as a marine biologist, and wrote a couple books, uh, one of which was, gave her enough success, it was called The Sea Around Us, uh, came out in the early 50s, and it gave her enough success that she could uh, stop working full-time and just concentrate on writing, which is what she really loved to do. So um, she got a call one day. She was trying to think about, you know, what to write. She got a call one day from a friend of hers up in Massachusetts, and the friend said, I was just in um, a bird sanctuary. It had been sprayed by something called DDT, and I watched the most gruesome scene as all of the birds writhed on the ground and died. And this just really struck Rachel Carson. So she started her book, Silent Spring, in the late 50s, and um, she just wrote it from a place not only of deep scientific understanding, but a real love for nature. And she, in her own words, said it was really the beauty of the living world that she was trying to save. So it it came from, you know, her heart. And as someone who just, I actually, oddly enough, last year picked up a copy of the book at my um, local library 
book sale and I paid a whole dollar for it. And I justified it in my head as saying, well, at least I'm supporting the library. But you start to read it. And if if any normal person reads about chlorinated hydrocarbons, it's like your mind just kind of turns off. But the way she writes it, you can't stop reading. And you learn about how these chlorinated hydrocarbon chemicals like DDT are fat-soluble, and anything that's fat-soluble can penetrate the placenta of a, of a mammal, and how this is going to affect future generations. And, you know, she really, she really um, writes beautifully. So here it is, 1960, and um, she's got this book out, and as Laura had referenced, uh, the chemical companies were freaking out, um, and they were attacking her left and right, calling her hysterical. Um, the AMA attacked her, and then nothing seemed to work because she just had this belief that what she was writing about was the right thing. And then they started to get really low and really hit with low punches. And one of the um, one of the things they uh, criticized her about was she had said she was interested in protecting future generations. And they said, how could that be? She's a spinster. <laughs> Everybody just went like, oh, oh my God. And then it was the 50s and 60s, and um, it was even a lower blow. They said she was under the influence of the Communist Party. So <laughs> she she really backed off. She was kind of a, a very modest person anyway. And she she realized that the government really had a role to play here. And... Um, you know, she wasn't really someone who was strong enough to go out and make a lot of public appearances because she was battling breast cancer at the time. And I guess it was, you know, pretty brutal on her physically. So um, it caught the attention of the Kennedy administration. And uh, JFK actually it, uh, brought it up at a press conference. And his secretary of the interior was a guy, a senator from uh Arizona, I think, Udall. And it basically, she was totally vindicated. Kennedy looked into everything she wrote and verified that it was absolutely, you know, provable and, you know, everything. So um, it didn't stop the chemical companies. They poured a half a million dollars, which I guess is a lot of money back then, into a campaign to fight her book. And totally backfired um, because of all the publicity. She just got tons of publicity. So even more book, books sold. <laughs> and um, it was, you know, I don't know what awards it won, but it was just a national bestseller. It was on the bestseller list for weeks and weeks. And it really spawned the movement that led to eventually Earth Day and uh, what we know as, um, you know, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and uh, Wildlife Refuge Act and all those things that happened during the 60s. So she, she was one person and she changed the world. And um, I, 
I thank Laura for having me look into this because it really explained a lot to me about my own life. And um, if I may, I'd like to fast forward a bit and talk about the pollinator pathway and changing the world. And I I just can't believe it, but it's all about um, how one person can make a difference uh, by doing things in their own backyard. So anyway, after seventh grade, I, I went the route of, you know, whatever the baby boomers did. I went to business school. I got a degree from Wharton. I went to Wall Street. I had a career for about a year, a decade and a half. And then um, I was lucky enough I could pull back and stay at home raising my two beautiful daughters. And I just started, there was no explanation for it. I just started learning about the environment, sustainability, protecting land, biodiversity, wildlife corridors. And, you know, for years, I've talked to people in their backyards and as a professional. Um, and eventually, in 2010, I landed on the board of my land trust, Wilton Land Conservation Trust. And it was at exactly at the time that a new um, group was forming called a Regional Conservation Partnership. And we met... Um, so it was an invitation to the land trust leaders from four towns uh, and the conservation commissions to do nothing except come together and meet and talk and learn and talk some more and da 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 da. So four towns grew to ten towns, and ten towns. We just said the heck with it. We might as well invite everybody in Fairfield County. So we became twenty-three towns that would get together and sit and talk and um, collaborate on on this and that. Um, and then in um, 2015, we we kind of said, well, it's time to stop talking and start doing something. So we got some money from the uh, U.S. Forest Service and were told to go out and figure out how to talk to suburban property owners. And the Forest Service said, we don't care if you flop. Because if you, whatever, if you do something and it fails, we know that's something that we won't waste our time doing. So I'm sitting in my kitchen going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I decided to uh, take some money out of this grant, and I bought 120 larval host trees, and I was going to give them away to people between the Hudson and Housatonic Rivers to create a corridor, a wildlife corridor, that I called the Bee Highway, which wasn't my original name. It was something I stole from somebody in Norway. And um, by the time I was done, we mapped the uh, properties that had taken these larval host trees, and lo and behold, there was a connected corridor of people who had signed a pledge who said that they were going to, you know, plant native plants and not use pesticides and, you know, rethink their lawn and do all these wonderful things. And the problem with grants is they end. (laughs) And it's it's like over. And I sat in my kitchen and I was just, uh, you know, I had made all these new friends. I was talking to people. You know, everybody was my best friend. And I thought, now what? This can't stop. And two things happened simultaneously. Number one, we had also mapped in this 
Hudson to Housatonic region, um, a land of highest conservation value uh, by taking, you know, data sets and layering them up. And in my town, Wilton, Connecticut, there was a big blob of land, which was all the way at the top of land of highest conservation value. And at the same time, the New York Times had come out with a game-changing article in the New York Times magazine in 2020, uh, excuse me, 2017, called The Insect Apocalypse. And it's basically all these scientists who were freaked out because insect populations were dropping by 80%. And, you know, they were predicting the end of all insect life on Earth within 10 years and that kind of thing. So I went to um, a group in my town, and I only was thinking about Wilton. So I, I got the leader of the, Nor- the Watershed Association, the president of our nature center, the chair of our conservation commission, chair of our Inland Wetlands Commission, and the head of the conservation committee of the Garden Club. And I said, I gave him a pitch. And I said, let's start a pollinator pathway in Wilton. And no sooner did we start than we were contacted by Ridgefield, Darien, Weston, Norwalk, everybody that abutted Wilton and said, we want to do this too. And that was it. And we started the pollinator pathway. And now... We are in 16 states. I just found out at 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon that we have a presence in all five boroughs of New York City. Mm. Um, it's, it's just we're out on the West Coast. Somebody from London sent me a check for $1,000 last <laughs> week. It's like, whoa, what's happening here? So if I can tell you a little bit about why I think this is just so successful. Donna, let's just reintroduce you, and I I must warn us all that we only have uh, like six minutes, I think, before the show will end abruptly. So, once again, we're speaking with Donna Merrill. Actually, why don't you do this, uh, Laura, since you're the uh, producer of this segment. We're talking to Donna Merrill, who is the founder of the Pollinator Pathway and president of its board of directors and many other um, accomplishments that one person, Ms. Merrill, did to help change the world. <laughs> yeah, we started with Rachel Carson, and, yeah. and I think that your wonderful story and, and just giving us the biography of Rachel Carson, uh, Donna, was really excellent because it put us back into that period of history, which was a, a real turning point. And it was just yeah. by probably a, a sheer stroke of luck that we had a president at that time who could hear that message and then suddenly turn it into action. I guess, you know, we could say that the the whole environmental movement really started with Rachel Carson. It did, yeah. Yeah. I have um, oh, uh, just yeah. a comment, and that is, I, I just looked it up. So basically because of Rachel Carson's book, uh, the United States did ban the use of DDT in 1972. Yeah, I know. It took a decade. Can you believe it? And I don't think that would have happened without her. <laughs> But it wouldn't have. No, no way. But you know what? One one pesticide down, 14 million new ones. Right. Right. But, you know, I'm um, just in just because we're talking about Women's History Month, the um, the the Peanuts comic strip had one where where Lucy called her a good role model for girls. <laughs> Miss yeah. Carson. She, she's endorsed by by, by Lucy. Lucy. By Lucy. Yeah. Say, I love that. Say no more. I know. <laughs> I mean, that's so 60s, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Go We're ahead. now hearing the inspiring story about your work to, to create this pathway. And just in the last minutes that we have, tell us about the importance of that pathway and how you would assess its effect in terms of actually creating a corridor where natural life can actually blossom, and especially insects and bees? Well, you know, just the question, to answer the broad question, what is the pollinator pathway? What it is, it's all about what we're doing right now, is talking to each other, collaborating, creating friendships, having conversations. And the thing about the pollinator pathway is we're not telling anybody what to do. We're just we're just there to help people do this thing, you know, making healthy backyards and protecting our butterflies. And, you know, basically we have a starter drug uh, that makes it so easy in the form of the monarch butterfly. You, you go to anybody and say, do you want monarchs in your backyard? And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, of course. So, you know, it's fun. It's easy. It's positive. It can be done in the middle of the urban city landscape. It's suburban. It's rural. And the thing is, is everybody can do it in their own flavor. It's not us telling them, oh, you've got to, you know, reduce your lawn by 50% or you've got to whatever it is. And there are a couple really good examples, one of which is um, NOFA. And... um, uh, if it hadn't been for the pollinator pathway, we would not have our ecotype project and the founders plots and uh, in Connecticut. Um, our lights out movement, that's all being led by somebody on the board of the pollinator pathway. Um, and that, that, that's, that's about light pollution, I, I, I presume? Well, light, well that's the, what's up before the um, Hartford in this, you know, term to turn out the lights in state buildings during the peak migratory season for birds birds. Ah, i mean this is all pollinator pathway stuff and um all over the country the reason why people are joining the pollinator pathway is they can do it however they want to do it donna we are just flat out of time and wonderful presentation there's a lot more to talk about here oh what's your website oh yeah our website please pollinator hyphen pathway.org full of resources uh get your property on our map send me an email a whole bit wonderful that's donna merrill she is the founder and the president of the board of directors for the pollinator pathway among many other achievements all right and for our wonderful team here laura model and chris ferrio and steve Munno, my name is richard hill this has been the organic farm stand 